Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 23rd, 2019. The Legitimate Legislative Purpose Edition I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Of 60 Minutes. John Dickerson is in uh, Charlottesville, where he is um, contemplating presidents with uh, various historians and distinguished figures. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Hello, John. And that Emily, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, of Yale University law school and of the book charged and emily is on book tour somewhere who knows where i'm actually also in virginia though not in charlottesville sadly wait where are you where are you i'm in middleburg virginia oh fancy you're in horse country yeah you're basically in dc outside of dc right i don't feel like i'm in dc yeah yeah on this week's gabfest the multi-front showdown between the president and Congress over whether he will submit to any oversight, whether the House will attempt to impeach him, whether any Trump administration official will ever speak before a House committee again. Then, should Democratic presidential candidates appear on Fox News? Then, we will dig into Josh Levine's brilliant new book, The Queen, the story of the welfare queen of Chicago, made notorious by Ronald Reagan in the 1970s. And, of course, we will have cocktail chatter and i just didn't have any place to put this but man did you guys see the story that steve nuchin is delaying the harriet tubman 20 dollars bill oh, till yes. 2026 at the story. earliest screw them screw those people yeah. it's fucking shameful yeah. screw them because trump likes andrew jackson one of the great monsters of american life it's harriet tubman truly like a world historically great figure it's outrageous anyway just need to say that no, we're not going to talk about it more it's all than true that. All right, before we get to the meat of the show, I want to announce two live shows. Of course, on Saturday, June 8th at 2 o'clock, an afternoon show in New York City at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. And you can go get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's going to be part of Slate Day, a full day of amazing podcasts, fun experiences, trivia. There's a, a Waves and Outward mashup show. There's a there's a mom and dad are fighting play date. There's a uh, culture culture gab fest. There's a ton of stuff. And our show is going to be happening that afternoon. Please get tickets. Uh, there's still some left. Go to slate.com slash live. And even more excitingly, perhaps a month later on July 10th, a Wednesday, we are going overseas. We're going abroad. We have our first international gab fest. We're going all the way to Toronto, Canada. We are going to be at Kerner Hall, the TELUS Center for Performance and Learning in Toronto on July 10th. You can go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Please come and join us, our dear Canadian friends or people just over the border. Come join us across the border and come into to Canada and, and uh, experience some great Canadian hospitality. We would love to see you in July in Toronto. Are you guys excited about going 
International Cab Fest? Thrilled. I love Toronto. I've only been there once. I had such a good time. For sure. All right. It is practically impossible to keep up with the twists and turns in the conflict between the president and Congress. He walked out of a meeting with Democratic leaders about infrastructure on Wednesday, railing that he wouldn't work with them while he they investigated him, then went to a staged uh, press opportunity in the Rose Garden to to denigrate and, and, and fulminate about that. He blocked former White House counsel Don McGahn from testifying to the House Judiciary Committee this week, defying a subpoena by making a sweeping claim of immunity. This, of course, follows up on Attorney General Barr's refusal to show up and the contemptuous refusal to supply the full Mueller report. He has sued to stop his accountants from turning over his tax records. He's also continuing to withhold returns, again, uh, in, in a contemptuous manner. There's so many possible versions of contempt happening here. Um, it continues, Emily, to feel like a very, very dangerous situation. Um, and yet it also continues to feel like House Democrats don't quite uh, have a have a you know have a have a game to play or have a have a move to make except maybe impeachment. Right. So it's this weird situation in which the def- Trump thinks that defying these subpoenas and running out the clock is his best political move, and so the constitutional collision course that we're on, there's no, he sees no reason to get off it. And the Democrats, while they're happy to keep up the pressure with the subpoenas and to be reaping in these court rulings are also having to figure out if they don't want to launch an impeachment inquiry. And at the moment, Pelosi seems determined not to do that yet. They have to be able to explain why they're not doing that. And, you know, we should also talk about Justin Amash, the Republican congressman from Michigan, put out this series of tweets over the weekend about why he thinks it is time to launch an impeachment inquiry. And and indeed, he was arguing there's plenty of evidence of obstruction in the Mueller report. And I think that also puts the Democrats in this odd position that the person who's making this very clear case for impeachment is not their leadership and and not even one of them. Can we um, categorize and look at whether there's any distinction between all of these refusals by the president. Um, I thought Noah Feldman made an interesting argument, whether it's uh, whether it holds up or not, but that when the Treasury Secretary refuses to hand over the president's tax returns, he's, as we learned this week from internal uh, judgment by the lawyers for the Treasury Department, he's actually not complying with a specific law. So he seems to have no grounds uh, for denying uh, the Ways and Means Committee the president's taxes. With the Don McGahn testimony, on the other hand, it does seem to me that the president at least has a defensible, actually quite a defensible case, whether he would win it or not is a separate matter. But the idea that a president needs unfettered counsel from his uh, people in the executive branch and that that's worth protecting, again, it's worth at least thinking about and trying to protect. And then you can decide in the end, as they did with Watergate, that there are other reasons to break that. Um, protection. But it seems in the McGahn case, at least the president has a leg to stand on, whereas in the Mnuchin case, it seems much weaker. In the Barr case, uh, refusing to testify also seems a lot weaker, particularly because he was uh, 
ruffled by the idea that there would be questioners who wouldn't be members but would be lawyers, which seems to me to be um, refusing to testify based on a norm rather than a law, um, which is weird when you hold up a norm in one case and then don't hold them up in others. Anyway, so I wondered, Emily, if there's a way to break and break down these different refusals into categories based on whether there's some sta- reason to make the case and some that's just pure stonewalling. Yeah, I mean, I think you did a good job of breaking it down. Noah was arguing, as you were, that the president has a plausible argument that in order to receive um, advice and counsel freely from his advisors, he has to be able to block them when their testimony is subpoenaed. I think the weakest part of this argument is that Trump already waived uh, his privilege to protect these communications when McGahn talked to Bob Mueller. And so then you're left with this argument, well, we let McGahn talk to someone within the executive branch that's different from allowing a subpoena from the separate legislative branch. I mean, that argument, like given how much we already know about what McGahn said and the, the testimony or deposition that the statements he made about his conversations with Trump just seems like such a small, tiny fig leaf of a distinction. And so I would expect that when this goes to court that Trump would lose. But that's the sort of legal question there. When you're talking about the tax returns, I mean, we have this law from Congress shall furnish to particular congressional committees. I don't know how the courts are going to side with the Trump administration on that one. We'll watch and see. And then, you know, Barr's testimony, his refusal to testify because of the kind of questioning from lawyers you're describing is just particularly hard to take, given that it was the Republicans who brought in a professional lawyer questioner for Christine Blasey Ford when she was testifying about, you know, her allegations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh. And brought out a questioner in not for really substantive reasons, but for almost entirely theatrical reasons. Um, whereas you can yes, make an inquisitorial reason. And you could make a more plausible case that there are matters of technical matters in the bar questioning that would uh, cr- create a reason to have a special uh, questioner. I would just add one other thing, which is that re- remember when Attorney General Barr first um, announced his summary of, I think it was the first time anyway, announced his summary of the Barr, uh, the Mueller report, he credited the president with not claiming executive privilege, uh, as, uh, in other words, saying the president has nothing to hide and has shown he has nothing to hide. Um, so it seems to me you can't, at the one hand, ask for points for candor and transparency for not asserting executive privilege and then assert it. In the uh, McGahn case, it's, it is clear, um, Noah, Noah Feldman does make a, a strong argument that, that Trump has a, at least a case to make that McGahn shouldn't testify. Although I do think it's weakened by the fact that this is what McGahn is being called to testify is about evidence of crimes being committed by the president. And you right. would think that the case for, for immunity, or the, case, the case for privilege would be very weak when, it's, when it relates to criminal behavior. So that's the first point. Second point is I am so deeply disturbed by this notion that that the Trump administration is, a, I think, confected from essentially nowhere about legitimate legislative purpose, that Congress that, that Congress can only get testimony for things if it has a legitimate legislative purpose, and the, the White House is the sole arbiter of what is a legitimate legislative purpose. And therefore, if, if they are seeking information about the president's tax returns, if they're seeking information from the president's accountants, that is not a legitimate legislative purpose. That is, that is not 
the judgment of anyone except Congress to decide. That is Congress's decision whether it is a legitimate legislative purpose or not. And and it's it's a if if this is becomes a, an idea that it, that is enshrined in law that some judge upholds this, we are in a bad place because then then Congress is essentially its oversight authority has been removed. Like it's 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 gone. It is no longer has the oversight authority that which it's been granted by the Constitution. Um, to, I want to move to impeachment. I am flummoxed about impeachment. So it is there's a there's obviously a, a, a cohort within the House Democratic Caucus that very much wants to start impeachment proceedings. Um, Jamie Raskin, a Maryland uh, member of Congress, is is one of the people pushing for that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, clearly does not really want to do it, although she's getting more and more irritated by the presidential behavior. Um, what? What is the case, John, for starting impeachment proceedings? What's the case against from a tactical – well, from whatever perspective you can think of for, that House Democrats might have? Like what, why, why would impeachment make getting this fact-finding easier or harder? Well, I, I don't know why it would make it easier actually. I mean it seems to me that the political route to go is the one that Pelosi is – that the, just based on factors, yeah, the smartest route is the one Pelosi is offering, which is this uh, polling shows that the nation uh, does not want impeachment. Um, and uh, and all and and impeachment as a word and a process, um, everybody basically knows what they know and think about the president and the country still doesn't want impeachment. So the danger and risk of creating and starting impeachment proceedings is that it, um, the, the shift that you could potentially create is one in which basically Democrats have a venue to um, overreach. And why set yourself up for that possibility? When you can do all the investigating you want, and then if something comes up in the course of the investigation, you say, well, gee, we didn't think we had, uh, you know, we should go down the impeachment road. But now that we found specific finding X, um, we'll do so. Now, people would say, but wait a minute, there are 10 instances of obstruction and and the rest of the Mueller report, which I I think when you look at Justin Amash's uh, argument about impeachment and you look at the standards set for impeachment by the 55 founders in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, it is unquestionably the case that there is, because the standard for impeachment is low and because the president didn't uh, comport himself, according to the Mueller report, in a way that is consistent with the original creation of the office, it's unquestionably the case that you could bring up an an impeachment inquiry based on the definition and what the president has done. But it's a political remedy and the politics aren't there right now. And that's what Pelosi is essentially saying. The argument for impeachment, I suppose, from Democrats is you don't know what you don't know. And only if you initiate impeachment proceedings do you really go after this question in the serious way that you need to. And if you read the details of the of the Mueller report, not just the president telling his lawyer to essentially not tell the truth, which is the allegation that's on the table, but then other just garden variety stuff, which is that you have a person who won office knowingly using material from WikiLeaks that was taken by the Russian government, an adversary of the United States to win office. Like, is that something we want in America? And to have a public conversation about that seems to me to be perfectly, perfectly reasonable thing to do with your uh, tax dollars and your time. Going to the Amash piece of this, Emily. uh, so, So Justin Amash, this Republican congressman from 
Michigan, quite libertarian, who's been been outspoken in a libertarian direction on a variety of issues, and and is his own person. Clearly, casts his vote uh, where he w- where he will. So he b- did have this very effective tweet storm. To me, the most interesting thing about Amash is this possibility, which seems to be floated in some kind of quasi-serious way that he might run on the libertarian ticket for president in 2020, which would seem to be a real way to damage President Trump, like in a way that that a, a primary challenge wouldn't be. That there's a possibility that in Michigan, especially if he can pick up 5% of a, the vote, he's a very popular member of Congress there, that that's a, that's a, a serious way to, to undermine the president. Do, does that feel like a live possibility to you? I mean, I have no idea whether Justin Amash is going to run for president. I think third-party candidacies have this kind of unpredictable feel about them, right? I mean, it's possible that Amash would also take votes away from whatever Democrat gets the nomination. I I agree with that. I mean, implicit in the Amash as an independent candidate or as libertarian candidate strategy is, it seems to me, the notion that politics operates in these clean lines. And I think what Emily says is right, which is that you can launch something and say, oh, I've got this really cool bank shot I'm going to try here. And then suddenly you pull the cue back and take your shot and the cue ball skips over the bunker and, you know, knocks over the family heirloom. I just think it's a uh, it's a politics is highly unpredictable. um, And this, uh, while it sounds interesting on the front end, could have all kinds of different uh, results that we don't that we can't predict. Can I say something else about Amash that I thought he was so skillful at expressing was his argument for why he thinks Bill Barr, the attorney general, deliberately misrepresented the Mueller report. And remember, of course, this misrepresentation on Amash's, um, in Amash's words, was our only interpretation, our only knowledge of the Mueller report for the first few weeks. So it really did succeed in creating the narrative initially around the report. And what Amash says is that The attorney general's misrepresentations were often subtle, frequently taking the form of sleight of hand qualifications or logical fallacies, which he hopes people won't notice. And I think that's true. There was something very lawyerly and um, stonewalling, but also skillful about the way in which Barr was inaccurate and how he said what he said the Mueller report concluded. And that this is part of why I find it I mean, this is, I think, why Barr doesn't want to go up against a professional lawyer-like questioner in front of Congress and the world, because he would be held account for exactly those kinds of sleight of hand um, misrepresentations in a way that could unravel them. John, let's close on this strange encounter between the president and House Democratic leaders on Wednesday and and the president's follow-up uh, Rose Garden uh, imprecations afterward. So they were meeting ostensibly, the president and and House Democratic leaders, to talk about the $2 trillion infrastructure bill, which we all know is never going to happen. But the the meeting never took off because the president came in and essentially indignantly, tantrumishly said that they had to stop investigating him. They would never get anything. He would never cooperate with them unless they stopped investigating. It was this really weird encounter is have we I, I don't even know where we're supposed to go with this like is it is it should we just basically give up on the idea that there is there could be legitimate that there could be actual uh legislation or actual work between the administration and congress now 
I, I think or is this just a just a moment? Well, if we haven't seen any actual legislation on a bipartisan basis, basically, um, at all. So I don't think it's a, a and the and the water has only gotten more poisoned. So I think we should expect that there's not going to be much uh, that's going to uh, that's going to take place, and that now. I mean, we just continue on the decline. So, yeah, no, I think we're we're basically locked up for a while. And heaven forbid, if there was actually an emergency, financial or national security, that required collective action. Can I just say one quick thing on the previous, which is about Justin Amash and his argument about the Constitution and impeachment? First of all, Benjamin Franklin argued the reason you needed to have impeachment of the chief executive was also was a to kick out anybody who rendered themselves obnoxious as he put it but also secondly to clear someone and so um the opportunity for the president to clear himself would be in keeping with the original conception of why you have an impeachment it's not simply to kick out somebody who misbehaves but secondarily i think what amash's um conception of this is raises some um problems for people who are who are conservatives and who cite the Constitution both when they talk about an originalist interpretation with respect to the Supreme Court, which conservatives have done regularly, but then who go back to the Constitution regularly in the in the in the context of other issues. So, for example, when Tom Cotton is being interviewed about abortion, he talks about unelected judges making the decisions on abortion and not legislators. He's going back to an original separation of powers argument. So he goes back to the Constitution and uses it as a touchstone in that context. Context. Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, goes back to the Constitution and uses it in the context of attacking what he calls the deep state. So when you are in, on the one hand, using the Constitution in your daily political conversations as the truth and touchstone of all that we do across a wide variety of topics, and then you come across this specific topic where they spend a lot of time at the Constitutional Convention talking about impeachment, where it's very clear that the people who created the Constitution would be quite concerned with the behavior of the president, to then suddenly say Justin Amash has no grounds for his argument that he bases directly in the Constitution, but that he's doing this because he's, you know, got some personal animus towards the president or he's trying to gain headlines to just blow past the Constitution and make this a totally political argument is not only hypocritical, but secondarily, it is itself in contravention of those founders that they so often cite, because the founders said that one thing that is going to ruin this republic is a situation in which people cling so desperately to party and faction that they completely lose sight of the founding principles of the country. And so they are both in fact and in behavior delinking themselves from the founders that in every other instance they use as the pure starting point for all political discussions there endeth the rant check plus yeah good to end on that one gabfest listeners slate plus you get bonus segments on the gabfest this week we're going to bonus you with finally the analysis of hereditary monarchy you've been waiting for. We are going to take on the politics of Game of Thrones, explain what political system is correct for that world. There will be spoilers. Be alert to that. So go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Mayor Pete crushed it on his Fox News town hall last week. He was calm, collected, collected, principled. Seems to have won over the crowd in the hall. He impressed Chris Wallace. He lobbed a few grenades at Tucker Carlson. He infuriated President Trump. It was not a bad night's work. He's the third presidential candidate to appear in a Fox town hall, including Bernie Sanders. And others are scheduling them. Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are saying they will not do a Fox Town Hall. And the DNC will not allow Fox to host a Democratic debate. So why, John, has the Fox appearance become a contentious question for Democratic candidates? Why is it suddenly so important? Well, it's a... um you know, because you can look at Fox News in two ways. You can either look at the uh, legitimate journalists, Brett Baer and Chris Wallace at Fox News, who are great journalists and two great who do great work. And uh, and you can go talk to them about the issues of the day or you can make the case that Elizabeth Warren made, which is that Fox, the entire Fox enterprise is uh, exists to sow division and hate. Um, and therefore, why would I want to participate in that? That is a, a very on-brand moment for her. I think also um, her policies, she is certainly speaking to the Fox uh, audience in her policies and what she's trying to do. And uh, so I don't think she's written off um, a lot of people who might support the president, but who would, um, for at least purely economic reasons, be susceptible to an Elizabeth Warren uh, set of policies. So I don't think she's politically writing off that part of the country. I think she's just saying, I don't need to play in this particular sandbox, which is a way for her to win cheers from her audience. It's not like she's without merit. I mean, one of the things that Fox did to come to power is to um, not only assert a conservative uh, view on the world, which is welcome and wonderful uh, in a in a um, pl- pluralistic society, but they also sought to delegitimize every other um, uh, news outlet um, and delegitimize other views, which is dangerous. So I think she's not without grounding. I think as a political matter, um, there aren't that many opportunities in a presidential candidate to show your sort of your medal, for lack of a, a, a phrase, um, and that going in somewhere where you know the uh, it may be a little stacked against you, or at least where the perception is that it's stacked against you, and then being able to succeed is an opportunity to sort of go into the lion's den, um, and you don't get many of those. So, in fact, a a candidate who has the kind of risk-taking that you want in a candidate, because you want it in a president, would, I think, jump at the opportunity to go in front of, especially because if it's Chris Wallace, Chris Wallace isn't going to, he's going to be tough, he's going to be hard, but he's he's not going to, you know, totally try to trick you. Um, It'll be a tough interview in the lion's den, which I would think you'd just rush to if you were a candidate. So I do think, Emily, there's a case, the the case for the debate versus the town hall are different. I think there's a much stronger case for the DNC to say we we don't want 
Fox hosting a debate than there is for any individual candidate to say I won't appear in a town hall. Why? Wait, make that argument. Because aren't they really both making an argument not about the particular setting or the show, but about Fox News, the corporation and the influence on American politics, right? I mean, they're really going back to the coverage of the Murdochs and how they've designed Fox News to distort American politics and saying we want to delegitimize this institution. We don't think it's really a, a a, a, a media organization. Well, what I'm saying is that there's a this is a collective action versus individual action. The, for the Democrats collectively, for clearly for for the country as a whole, my view is that we would be better off without Fox because it has this meretricious effect. And I do think that Elizabeth Warren's case is very persuasive in, in that regard. And and it's it's also very persuasive why she wouldn't want to participate. That that said, it is simultaneously the case that Mayor Pete benefited and Bernie Sanders benefited from their appearances at Fox Town Halls because they they appeared to be crossing over. They were showing courage in the way John just described. They appeared respectable to con- conservative viewers. They showed their ideas could get cheered and, and could transcend party. And so that was individually useful to them, even though it might be it further the the, the damage to the country as a whole because it legitimizes Fox. I think for the party, the party makes a decision, which is we do not want to legitimize Fox as a party. And so we should not participate. We should not give them cover to to host a debate. So so I understand why the party makes that decision. And I also understand why any individual candidate would make the decision that actually for me, it is highly advantageous for me to do this because I get individual benefits. It's a it's a um, it's a free rider problem. Like there's a that Mayor Pete can free ride. Wait, I feel like you're leaving out part of political discussion, which is that I think for Warren, and I should say I'm writing about Warren right now, but um, just so our audience knows that, but for Warren, she made a political calculation that might have also been helpful to her. She sent out a fundraising letter soon after that, right? I mean, she's pitching to the Democratic base, to people who are likely to vote for her, like I'm the one who's not falling for the Fox bullshit. So there's a different kind of political benefit she saw. I just, I think that's part of the equation here. Whatever you think about the merits. And I agree with you about the benefits to Sanders and Buttigieg. Yeah, I think that's right. It's working for both, for both of them. It's working for all sides. I think everyone, everyone is benefiting. I think the, the people who are going on Fox are benefiting. I think the people who are not going on Fox are benefiting. I think Fox itself is probably benefiting. And then the, the you know. Totally. The Democratic Party is, is it's probably okay for them. Can I say one thing that surprised me in reading about the coverage of um, the Sanders town hall in particular, which I didn't watch, was that the audience was cheering for his ideas. And it seems like. Fox is not packing these town halls with, you know, right wing, clear Trump supporters. And that is actually really interesting to me and I think supports the notion that at least in this town hall forum, this is not necessarily like, you know, preordained, fabricated um, conversation that actually like there is a mix of voters there. I I actually think it might be a different point. I think that's actually that part is certainly true. But that it's that there's a split that's happening between partisanship and ideology almost or partisanship and beliefs that what people actually believe in terms of what policy ideas they like mm-hmm. has, has almost become totally d- separate from their partisan identity. Their partisan identity is first primary and determines what they're doing. But when you present them with specific ideas, then the conservative might well be they might well be welcoming certain sets of ideas which are associated with very liberal uh, policies. 
And that's that's a weird thing. It's actually bad because people no, don't vote for those policy interests. But it's good in the sense that, uh, you know, at least it suggests the ideas have valence. And actually, just to – John, I know you want to make a point, but one final thing is I actually think that fact – is should should encourage Democrats as a whole, not just presidential candidates, but Democratic politicians as a whole, to spend more time going on Fox, not because you're going to get fair treatment, because you won't, but that putting your ideas, it's, it is a chance to put ideas into the bloodstream of conservatives and to, to familiarize them with ideas, and they may actually find them appealing. I mean, and those ideas a, may then, you uh, may overturn windows. Well, thing, that assumes I, that they I, actually get to talk about their ideas. I'm not sure how much they're on Fox to do that. I mean, they can try to sabotage the segment, but let's just remember that Fox has control over the questions it asks, and it does yank people off the air sometimes when it doesn't like what they're saying. Well, but that's different than these ta- town halls. They're not, they're not yanking. True. I mean, but I think you need, I think, David, you, you fuzzied up some uh, classification. I think there's a difference between a conservative, a Fox viewer, and a Republican. Um, so I think people can, um, the people who are applauding Bernie Sanders' views are not conservatives, but they are Fox viewers. Um, and they and they support Fox and they support the president and therefore kind of at the final end support the Republican Party only because the president is at the head of it for identity reasons or uh, other ones that don't have to do with a conservative ideology. There used to be a period where you had a party that was made up of different kinds of conservatives. I think now it's really a a very clear relationship between the president and the Republican Party, which has delinked it from from the conservatism. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. This week marks the publication of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It is the first book by Slate's national editor, Josh Levine, a longtime and beloved colleague of all of ours. The Queen is a masterful achievement. It is an extraordinary feat of reporting and writing, and we're going to tell you why. So, Josh, start by telling us who Linda Taylor is and why Ronald Reagan was talking about her, although not using her name in the mid-1970s. Thank you for having me. Um, So in 1974... Linda Taylor becomes a known person in the world when she's written up in the Chicago Tribune. The first paragraph of the first story that was written about her in September 74 is about how she was collecting welfare checks despite having uh, a Cadillac, despite claiming to own all these buildings on the south side of Chicago, despite being about to go on a Hawaiian vacation. This image of the welfare queen, which is a name that the Chicago Tribune affixes to her, 
And then when Ronald Reagan runs for president for the first time in 1976, he tells a story about welfare fraud and welfare fraud being a problem. He doesn't use her name. He calls her a woman in Chicago, but he says that she um, is getting $150,000 tax-free income each year by scamming the welfare system. And when he says this, we have, um, you know, I found a recording of, of him giving this speech. The crowd gasps at that number. It's an extremely effective piece of rhetoric. So, so Josh, you find the story and then it seems to me like you have a kind of choice or maybe you pursue two different avenues. There's this question about what her case means for welfare policy um, and then there's the second case about her as a character and who she really is. So do you go down both of those paths? How do you think about this as a reporter? Yeah, totally parallel tracks in my reporting, thinking about how she was used and her story was used, both in electoral politics and also in policymaking. And so for me, the task was trying to shine a light on who this person actually was and what she had actually done to show the chasm between what the story was, the official story was, and what the reality was, and show how kind of, in, in some ways, how disingenuous and what it was, and just as a journalist, how she didn't embody um, typical uh, welfare recipients. What, do you think the welfare? Well, first of all, what was the political impact of her story? And so, so how did how did that anecdote turn into policy? And do you think that narrative of the welfare cheat, the welfare queen, the welfare cheat, welfare fraud, was going to spread regardless of whether there was this, this you know, incredibly vivid person to hang it on? So locally, there are a lot of impacts in Illinois where she was prosecuted. Welfare recipients become seen as more of a suspect class, kind of in the direct aftermath of the Taylor story. There are recipients no longer mailed their checks. They have to go cash them at currency exchanges because it's believed that there's a high likelihood that they're faking who they are or that they're getting checks under different identities because that's a thing that Taylor did. Um, Prosecutions for welfare fraud ramp up by hundreds and hundreds of percent. And that includes small dollar fraud, not the Taylor-esque major fraud. And that's a national trend too. That's not just in Illinois, that previously people not reporting outside income because their their welfare grants were too small and they were making a little bit of extra money to try to you know feed their families. That was handled as an administrative matter. It's increasingly treated as a criminal justice matter. And I think Taylor has a big effect on that. And then nationally, Reagan does not win in 1976. But in 1980, when he runs successfully, he continues to tell the Linda Taylor story on the trail. And then once he's president, he continues to tell the story. Um, He tells it to the Congressional Black Caucus, which is an amazing (laughs) scene that I, uh, you know, that I was I was shocked to hear about. Um, He tells it to lots of people in Congress behind closed doors. He tells it to newspaper editors as this is the thing that we are trying to address and deal with. And in his first budget, there's very large cuts to food stamps and aids to, aid to families with dependent children. And as he's making those cuts and selling them, this is what he's talking about. Was there no welfare fraud, though, in the, the late 70s? Oh, sure. There was certainly welfare fraud, just as there's fraud in any government program. The question was, was it characterized accurately? Taylor was somebody who's 
the extent of her fraud was exaggerated. When Reagan talked about her stealing $150,000 in a single year, he was citing what some government official had claimed in Illinois. That that number wasn't accurate. It was way higher. Um, But also just the notion that Taylor was even a typical fraudster was incorrect. What was far more typical was people failing to report outside income, people being put in this bind where you're you're supposed to stay home. This grant is supposed to support you taking care of your kids and not leaving the home. At the same time, if you stay home and don't have a job, you're considered lazy. Um, and these grants are also too small for you to be able to pay for your for your family's needs. So the fraud is kind of baked into the system. You kind of have to commit, quote unquote, fraud in order to su- survive in a lot of cases. So, Josh, one thing I was thinking about is that this is in some ways a story that is familiar to me from the criminal justice system of an outlier case being held up and then used to make terrible policy. It's like a trap we seem to fall into over and over again, where um, something that's completely atypical takes on all this meaning. But in this case, the sort of twist is that the welfare system had all the problems you were just describing in it, right? Like it it was dysfunctional because it was discouraging work, but also not really allowing people not to work off the books. I mean, I have very mixed feelings about how welfare ended and where we've gotten to with these incredibly stingy, meager benefits that we're willing to pay. But I, there is part of me that wonders if 80s welfare was kind of doomed with or without Taylor. I think that's a totally fair point. And the blame was assigned to the people who were who were receiving the aid, the people in the system, not the, the architects of the system. There was never um, a consideration or thought given to how can we make this work for the people on it. At a certain point, aid to families with dependent children becomes so maligned and reviled that you're kind of considered to be suspicious just by virtue of being on it, of being in the program. When ADC, the predecessor, was created in the 1930s during the FDR administration, it was designed, intended primarily for white widows. Right. And, you know, who's who's more deserving of uh, society's largesse, you know, in America than, than the white widow? I mean, when those people get kind of moved off into Social Security the folks who are left in the program are seen as maybe less worthy. And I think so much of the way that the program was designed and the way that was talked about, that is the foundation of it, is the feeling that the people receiving this aid are not worthy. Right. And if we hadn't demonized someone like Linda Taylor, maybe we would have actually thought about what was wrong with the system and fixed it in a way that would have made it function for the people who need the support. Right. Is that do we think that's really true, though, because in the 70s, you had the height of conservatism in America and the kind of plateauing of liberalism as the as basically suburban whites reacted against the growth of African-Americans in the city, either racially or because they were taking their jobs. I mean, there was a, a, a backlash against the liberalism of the New Deal that would have found an outlet you know, was just searching for an outlet. It happened to land in welfare for a variety of reasons, uh, racial and economic, um, and having to do with cities. But, you know, I'm not sure that the policy response would have been um, great were it not for 
uh, uh, for Linda Taylor, right? I mean, there was just the, the, the entire thrust of American uh, uh, policy and politics in that period is heading in a, in a conservative direction. The way that I think about Taylor is that she was the right person at the yeah. right time in the right place, mm-hmm. or depending on your valence, the wrong person in the wrong place. She was somebody who you could assign that larger story that you were talking about um, t- I mean, to John. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just think about how powerful. I think when we all heard about that you were working on this, fur coat wearing, Cadillac driving, welfare queen. This is this phrase that phrases that stick with us. We were all you. We weren't. You weren't born. We mm-hmm. were tiny kids when this happened, and yet the, those phrases are so powerful. You know, forty years on, and that's pretty extraordinary. That speaks to ha- how useful she was as a figure in this. Yeah, and I think that it's very similar to how Trump has used undocumented immigrant criminals in his rhetoric. There's the story of Kate Steinle, who mm-hmm. Trump called beautiful Kate, who was killed by an undocumented immigrant, and as you know, our colleague Jeremy Stahl pointed out in a great story for Slate, the evidence seems very strong that the killing was an accident. But the way that it's talked about is that it was an evil, vicious monster who came across the border and killed this woman. And that's the power of these stories, the power of like having these victims of immigrant crime up on stage. Like you need something to to look at and something to latch onto like that. I want to turn to Linda Taylor herself because what what is astonishing about this book is is your exploration of her life. And she, in many ways, led a totally ordinary life, born in poverty, died in obscurity. Um, but she was uh, she was she was an extraordinary criminal. She was a person who had extraordinary gifts as a as a grifter, as a con artist, and as you as you say, is possibly much worse. So how do you reconcile the fact that this this woman's crimes as identified by Ronald Reagan and the Chicago Tribune were actually only a, that was only a fraction of her villainy? She was a kidnapper. She was likely a murderer, I think. She posed as a heart surgeon. She posed as a voodoo priestess in order to con people. She stole people, individuals' pension checks. She didn't just steal from the government. She stole from her own children. She was a lifelong scammer and victimizer. And if Reagan or anybody else had said, you know, the problem with the welfare system is that you have this woman stealing $150,000 a year who also murders people, um, I think that that is not as effective of a piece of rhetoric. Um, You want her to, if you're Reagan or whoever else, you want her crime to be extraordinary, but you want it to be the type of crime specifically that you're trying to rile people up about and trying to make policy around. And so that's why her other crimes, her her worst crimes, get erased from her public image. They're written about kind of glancingly by the Tribune, but um, Taylor was accused and suspected of homicide in 1975, just a few months before Reagan starts talking about her on the stump, and it's just not assimilated into his story or just the public story about her. All right, Josh, before we let you go, a couple of things. One, who should play Linda Taylor in in a movie about Linda Taylor? Who would be a good person to star as Linda Taylor? My partner thinks Maya Rudolph would be good. Mm-hmm. Let her kind of stretch dramatically. We're big, we're big Maya Rudolph fans in our mm-hmm. household. That would be a new dimension um, to the Maya guys- Rudolph oeuvre, wouldn't it? 
I think that Maya Rudolph is just really, really underrated. Do you guys have uh, have thoughts? That's Maya Rudolph's a good idea. She can, and you could you could make it more. She comic. has shape shifting qualities. I could see that. There is like a very very dark yeah. comedy to a lot of the stuff that Taylor does in terms of how she's able to convince people um, that she's anyone that she, that she is a heart surgeon, that she is um, a practitioner of voodoo who calls herself Dr. Shfolia, the like reader of the unknown. Like, she's a quite fascinating character. And uh, finally, I want you to tell us a little bit about the editor who signed the story originally. Like that person <laughs> that, like must be a real visionary. <laughs> so the real genesis of this book was David Plotz approving me to dig into who this person was. That's the official version. The real version is that the genesis of the book is David Plotz making me cut 5,000 words from the story <laughs> two days before it published on Slate in 2013. I was like, this is all great material. Uh, there's no use wasting it. I've got a good start on a book. Uh, and it only took me five and a half years. Uh, so thank you for giving me that launching pad. <laughs> Is that true? If, you, if I'd let you run the story <laughs> at 22,000 words, then, then you would have, uh, then you would never have written the book? Well, the, uh, our politics editor at the time, Will Dobson, who edited the story, as I was going along, would also say, just put, put it in the book. Um, kind of they wave, were just wave, trying wave to his hand to me. Uh, they were making cuts. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I thought that they wanted me to write a book. What they're actually saying is stop writing and get the damn story on the internet. Well, I'm glad the book exists as a book. I think it's all a happy yeah. ending. Exactly right. Actually, that's a great point. It is, it, it, it is great that it exists in a book because it's a, it's a wonderful tale. It can be a testament to both of your geniuses. David can still take too much credit. You all should go buy Josh Levine's book the queen the forgotten life behind an american myth available in all fine bookstores and josh is probably coming to a town near you josh good luck thank you so much and there's also a podcast of the queen that you can listen to on slate and it's excellent in every medium thank you Gabfest. appreciate it let's go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting around in your furs and in your cadillac about to go on a ride in your Cadillac. Actually, maybe you've come back from a ride in your Cadillac because you don't want to drink before you go on your ride in your Cadillac. But you're sitting around in your furs, Emily, uh, having a drink. What are you going to be chattering about? That is like the perfect intro for this chatter. Um, I read a story today in the Connecticut Mirror that filled me with such frustration and irritation at my home state of Connecticut. It's an article called Separated by Design, How Some of America's Richest Towns Fight Affordable Housing. It's by Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. It's in The Mirror, but it's also it was done um, in partnership with ProPublica. Oh, my God, Connecticut. Oh. <laughs> Connecticut's wealthy towns just throw up every single zoning and other barrier they can possibly think of to keep affordable housing out of their communities. It means that Connecticut is just increasingly segregated in terms of race and class. And the, some of the quotes in this piece about people justifying these practices in wealthy, wealthy places like Westport, I, ugh, it was just gross. Like, what, how do they, ugh, how do they so justify? There's this planning and zoning commissioner named Chip Stevens who said, this is a plan with like barely any affordable housing, okay? Like this is a place, <laughs> all they were trying to do was build two duplexes and five single family homes. And this guy, Chip Stevens, says, to me, it's too much density. It's putting too much in a little area. It's ghettoizing Westport. 
I mean, it's amazing. Oh. This article is they, filled with people saying shit like that. I, I just like, I don't know what to say. I was horrified. Um, and as a companion to this, my colleague at the Times and our old slate colleague, Farhad Manju, has an excellent opinion piece today about San Francisco making a similar point. And also, I think, making this super important overarching point, which is these are liberal blue democratic cities, and they are keeping people out of their communities in a way that is resonant with the Trump administration's throwing up walls and using ICE to pick up undocumented immigrants. And, you know, Democrats and people, liberal blue people who are part of these zoning fights need to look in the mirror. I'm not saying that every single development project is a good fit for every single community, but the pattern across the country of people erecting these kind of moats and barriers and wanting poor people always, always to be somewhere else far away is, and not even poor people, just like middle-class people in this fight going on in Westport. It's, it's gross. And, you know, it has a real effect on people. The lack of affordable housing is just a huge, huge problem in this country. The Farhad's piece is brilliant it's a brilliant 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 piece about san francisco but about cities and nimbyism generally right and it's not just about san francisco right it's like san francisco epitomizes this problem but like all of us we all need to think about this in our cities they're facing that very question in uh in charlottesville where affordable housing is a real big problem uh such a problem that dave matthews donated five million dollars to try to break the log jam of the of the amazing bureaucracy uh, in Charlottesville to get um, affordable housing. But anyway, my chatter is not about that, but about some interesting testimony we might get one day from Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, who um, went and testified or uh, to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I don't know if it was testimony or just a conversation, but many hours of conversation about his time as Secretary of State and the President's um, interactions with foreign leaders. And one particular one that will be really interesting to see if they uh, release the transcripts is the president has been um, uh, a boastful, I think is a fair way to put it, about really not having to prepare for his meetings with either Kim Jong-un or um, Vladimir Putin because negotiations, uh, that's his thing. He knows how to do that. He knows how to feel people out and get a sense of them. And when these meetings were taking place, I um, went back and looked at Nixon's meeting uh, when he first went to China. And then, uh, of course, Kennedy's meeting with Khrushchev, which was a great uh, historical moment because basically um, Kennedy got his hat handed to him um, by the Russian leader um, in Vienna. And um It turns out that Rex Tillerson describes essentially the same thing that happened to Kennedy and Khrushchev is that Kennedy and Khrushchev met and Khrushchev turned it into an assault on the West and all of its great ills. And um, basically in their first meeting, Trump and and Putin met and it was supposed to be a a sort of a short, um, somewhat informal meeting. And it turned into a two hour, um, basically Putin, who has a reputation for preparing excessively for these kinds of meetings, just basically went on a rant about America. And the quote from the Washington Post piece uh, characterizing Tillerson's testimonies afterwards, uh, Tillerson said, or this is the characterization of it, we spent a lot of time in the conversation talking about how Putin sees every opportunity to push what he wanted. There was a discrepancy in preparation, and it created an unequal footing. The reason this is interesting, obviously, is that this is... um, you know, people kind of wonder why experts matter. And when you go into world leader meetings, 
experts matter because they prepare you and preparation. It would seem odd to say that it's important to do your homework. And yet here I am saying that. And when we finally hear from Tillerson's uh, conversations, it'll be uh, interesting to give us the actual nuts and bolts of why it's so important to have done your homework before these kinds of meetings. My chatter is about a story that was in the Wall Street Journal based on some IRS uh publicly available IRS data, which is about the audit rate, IRS's audit rate. So it turns out the IRS audit rate for households with incomes over $10 million, that is really rich people, has plunged in the Trump administration. So in 2015, it was about 35%, 35%, then 19%, then 14%. Now it's down to 6.5%. If you are a really rich person, the chances that you're going to get audited and that you're going to get your your chicanery, your tax chicanery is going to get caught and exposed and you're going to have to pay for it has dropped precipitously. Audit rates for every everybody have dropped, but it had, they've dropped by far the most. The, the richer you are, the more they have dropped. And actually, that's not true. They've risen for the very poor. That's what I was going to say. I thought that was true. And, you know, I have to say this takes us back to Josh's segment. Like, who do we demonize? Who do we go out and get? What kind of fraud do we care about? Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a very consistent, like, you know, if, if it's it's dropped a huge amount for people in, who are the richest, a ton for people who are merely just incredibly rich, a lot for people who are rich, pretty much for people who are fairly well off. And then as you get to to people who are poorer, it starts to creep back. I think the part of the creeping up too is people who collect the earned income tax credit, which is like one of the only good benefits we have for poor people. We also are collecting your listener chatters, a bunch of really good ones this week. Thank you all. And uh, you are sending them mostly by tweet to us at at SlateGabFest. Please keep that up. And GabFest Squared, at GabFest Squared. So this is a Twitter account, which is about us. Huh. Anyway, they had a good uh, listener chatter, which is they point us to an article in the Post and Courier, the Charleston, South Carolina newspaper, which is a a series of interviews with African-American residents of Charleston about the first time they ate in white-owned restaurants. It's very moving and very depressing because, of course, if you were a black Charlestonian or black Southerner, you basically could not eat in any white-owned restaurants until the 60s at the earliest and later in some cases. So uh, check out this article about those encounters with white-owned restaurants. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. You can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us. Remember, we have a live show in Toronto on Wednesday, July 10th. Please join us for that international GabFest. Canadians, Canadians, please come. And we have our June 8th show as part of Slate Day. Both Tickets for both of those are available at slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We are going to spoil Game of Thrones. You may have heard that show had its finale. If you are still holding out, you don't want to know what happened, then don't listen to the rest of the segment. Do not listen. There. Are you gone? Now we're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about you. That outfit you were wearing today, that was terrible. Oh, you're still listening? That was a... 
I didn't realize it. I thought you were going. We also just have questions uh, so, about anyone who's trying at this point not to spoil the Game of Thrones ending. Yeah. So for this, we're not really going to talk about much, but I thought I, the question I had coming out of the Game of Thrones finale was this, the government that that was envisioned for for Westeros is very interesting. So there are three models of government that are presented as possibilities in this finale. The first one, which is mocked, is Sam Sam Tarley, idealistic Sam Tarley, who is in some ways embodies writer George R. R. Martin, makes the case for democracy, that the people should choose their leaders. And he has laughed, literally mocked and ridiculed for making this case that is that is ludicrous. And the people the are equated to case, dogs and horses. Don't forget that part. Yes. Should we have dogs and horses? Uh, the second case is for hereditary monarchy, that blood confers legitimacy that you you are you you would inherit the throne and that's the case that's the case that Danny is making and that John the people who want John to be king also think well he is he's a legitimate Targaryen um, but that that's been the way Westeros has been ruled is that the, the legitimacy goes with blood and then the choice that they make is a kind of aristocratic meritocratic monarchy where the elite will choose a king by consensus and they do this and they choose uh, Bran, Brandon Stark to be their king in part Super because annoying. he cannot have children. Unearned. Yeah, he can't have children. And male. Uh, and he's male, <laughs> yes. So, do, I mean, I have a, I have strong views on this, but um, uh, Emily, any thoughts on which of these methods of government makes sense given the context of what we know of, the, of this land? I mean, I think that they could try out democracy and see how it goes. I suppose you could make an argument that you're supposed to ready the populace for this, that they can't handle the vote all at once. But like, I don't know, why not? And especially because the lords and ladies that um, we've encountered on the show have been, shall we say, kind of underwhelming and problematic as a class of people to leave these decisions to. All right, for, we're not going to have we're not going to have it. What about between hereditary monarchy and this this chosen monarchy, John? Do you have any take on that? Um, well, first of all, when didn't the slaves in Slavers Bay um, get totally out of control after they were uh, liberated? So we do, don't we have one at least uh, demonstration of um, you know power to the people didn't work out. Uh, oh, excellently. are you making what a big public policy decision based on one potentially outlier case, John Dickerson? Um, well, it's the only. It's not. Gavis fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.